What a special comfort it is to be reminded of the fact that in our hour of death, He will call us to be with Him. That is our hope, and that is why we say, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Absent from the body is present with the Lord. That's the hope we have as Christians. That's why we're here this morning. I hope that's the case. And that's why we do these things and say these things and sing these things is because we believe in this Christ who has given us this great hope. It was pretty early in our series in Romans when we came across the idea that a Christian is a slave. Maybe familiar terminology to you, a familiar concept, an idea, but we came across this at the very beginning. As we entered into this epistle, Paul's most famous epistle to the Christians at Rome. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant or slave of Christ Jesus. That's how he begins his letter. That's how he identifies himself. He wastes no time in identifying himself with Christ. And in doing so, identifying himself specifically as a slave of Christ. So when he identifies himself, he does so in relation to Christ, and when he does so in relation to Christ, it is as a slave. Paul wasn't just saying this as an apostle. You might be tempted to think that. Uh, Paul was uniquely enlisted by God to carry out a mission, a really a militant mission Uh, with the kind of spiritual warfare we see, for example, in Ephesians chapter 6, where he is going around preaching the gospel of Christ, and he is being attacked spiritually, and we see that playing out physically in Paul being persecuted. But it's not just as an apostle, as an enlisted one, sent out, called by Christ. Paul says this as a Christian. We know that because he goes on a little bit later to call himself an apostle. And those two are linked. This idea of the servant of the Lord goes back to the Old Testament prophetic office. But Paul, at the core, refers to himself in this way as a Christian. He was saying it as a Christian, as a person who had experienced the truth of Romans 6. So Paul, when he introduces himself in this way, in the very first verse, he is anticipating what he's going to say to his Christian readers about Christians in chapter 6. Now, of course, he wasn't thinking chapter 6. Those were added later. But he was thinking about this portion of his argument undoubtedly. So if you would go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Romans 6. We are in verses 15 to 19. Romans 6, verses 15 to 19. The title for the sermon this morning is Life as a Slave. And you'll see that up here on the screen. Life as a Slave. Over the past few weeks, we've seen that Christians are, (coughs) excuse me, Christians are the living dead. It's the way Paul describes believers, we've died with Christ, we've died to sin, and so the life we now live, we live as those who have died. We live having died, dead with Christ, dead to sin. And last week we saw that the Christian life can therefore be characterized as life after death. We think of life after death as life after we leave our bodies, but there is a sense in which the Christian life is itself life after death, and that's what we looked at last week. But there's another way to understand who we are and what has happened to us as Christians And it has been there in the background all along. As we've been looking at chapter 6, this concept has been there all along. And it is the concept of slavery. 
Paul has this in view as he explains the fact that we've died to sin. We're no longer under sin's dominion. So we've seen that servant dominion language, but now when we come to this passage for today, Paul wants to explicitly and in more detail deal with this concept of slavery. As Christians, we, like Paul, are slaves of Jesus Christ. Bought the Bible tells us, with a price, 1 Corinthians 6.20. We are his own possession. Christ owns you if you are a Christian. You are a possession of Christ because he gave himself for our sins, Galatians 1.4. He paid the price with his own life to ransom us from sin, from death. He has now made us his very own possession. So if you would stand with me now as we come to read God's word, we're going to read all of chapter six uh, up through verse 19. I think that will help us as we try to make sense of, of these verses and It's hard sometimes when Scripture is being read, uh, it's hard to kind of keep our minds focused. Our minds will sort of uh, steer off somewhere else. Let me just encourage you right now, this is a very important part of the service, the actual reading of Scripture. So buckle your minds in and listen carefully and intentionally as we read now God's Word. Try to follow Paul's argument. Try to follow his logic into verses 15 to 19 as we read them. This is God's holy word. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. See, we've seen that slavery language already. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God In Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments or weapons for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments or weapons for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And now for our passage for today, verses 15 to 19. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. 
I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. You can go ahead and be seated. These are beautiful words. Such richness. Regarding the Christian life. This is, this is the Christian life 101. What does it mean to be a Christian? How do we behave as a Christian? How do we think about ourselves and others who are Christians? What rich material we get in this chapter on the nature of the Christian life. So let's go to God in prayer and ask for his blessings. Ask for clarity in my speech and in all of us as we understand his word, that the Spirit would do that work among us this morning. Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who regenerates us and who, with his strength, helps us to live the Christian life well for your glory and the good of our neighbor and our own edification, our own being built up and conformed to the image of Christ. God, we give you praise for this comforter who has been given to us whom you and your son have sent to us. We thank you for his inspiring of scripture. We thank you for his birthing of the church. We thank you for the fact that he has changed each of us and that he gives us daily the strength that we need to live the Christian life. We thank you that we live in the spirit, in accordance with the spirit now that we are believers. And Father, we ask that that same Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, would be with us now as we come together around his word, authored by him through the Apostle Paul, as we come now and sit underneath your word, we pray that he would help us to understand it and that he would apply its words to our hearts, to our specific situations, to our sins, to our areas of temptation, Lord, we ask that real heart work would happen this morning and that real holiness would abound. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we think about the Christian life as slavery, Paul gives us here two main things to consider in these verses. And you'll see them up here on the screen. So I've tried to boil this down to uh, two parts as we look at this text, two, uh, two areas that, uh, uh, that we find within the text itself. So first we see the change, and this will take us from verses 15 down to verse 18. And then secondly, we see the charge or the call or directive, which will take us through verse 19. So the change and the charge. So let's look first at the change. So what is Paul's argument in this passage? I think that's why going through Romans, preaching through Romans, listening to Romans read, uh, hearing Romans preached is challenging. I mean, this is challenging. And the reason for that, so, so if, if you've got some sort of uh, notion that you should not have to think in church, uh, going through something like Romans just breaks that up immediately, right? Because this is hard stuff to put our mind around. And the reason why it's difficult is because it is sustained argumentation. Paul is unfolding, he's explaining, he's building. So you have to get the various parts of his argument in order to understand later parts. It's a chain of reasoning. You have to get to the conclusion by following the various steps that Paul lays out for us here. And following that logic, following that argument is challenging sometimes because it takes us deep into the weeds. So how do we trace his logic here in order that we might understand what the Holy Spirit has inspired for us here? So he gives us three, I think Paul gives us three stepping stones that culminate in the great change, which is why I've entitled this point, The Change. Three stepping stones that culminate in the change that has happened for 
Christians. And here they are. So these are three subpoints under this first point, the change. Three stepping stones to help us understand the logic of verses 15 to 18. So here they are. First, a question and answer. Second, an either or. And then finally, an old versus new. That's what he does in these verses. So let's go through that. First, a question and answer. Paul begins with a question. You'll see that there in verse 15. He begins with a question and then he answers that question. Or you could say that Paul begins with an objection. And then he responds to that objection. And this is parallel to verses 1 to 2. We've seen this already. He's doing again what he did back in chapter 6, verses 1 to 2. So let me read these side by side. Verses 1 to 2. What shall we say then? So he's just gotten through with some pretty strong teaching at the end of chapter 5. And then he says... What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Grace abounds over sin. That's what we got at the end of chapter 5. What then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. God forbid. Absolutely unthinkable. No way, Jose. Impossible. And so many other things you could say. And then he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it. That's how he answers it in verses 1 to 2. Well, now we come to verses 15 to 16, and he starts in the same way. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Just So we're under grace, so sin really doesn't matter. It's a kind of a non-issue. It's a non-category. Are we to just do it because we're not under that scheme anymore? We're not, under, we're not in that sphere anymore. So should we just go on Sinning, once again, by no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? So there Paul gives the answer. He he asks the question and he gives the answer. And once again, Paul is saying this. It makes absolutely no sense for the Christian to go on sinning. It's it's nonsensical. It is a contradiction in terms. It is an affront to our very identity. This is the same point that Paul is making in both sets of verses. It is a contradiction. It's an affront to our identity. Grace does not produce that kind of life. You know, we went through Titus some time ago, and I think it was really helpful for showing us that the gospel of grace necessarily produces holiness of life. They just go together, right? Grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives. We read in Titus chapter 2. Grace produces by necessity that kind of life. So if any so-called grace is producing another kind of life, you need to revisit grace. Because grace by its nature does things, i.e. makes a person holy. To go on sinning is to present our members to sin. That's how Paul is characterizing it here. To go on sinning, to practice sin, it is to present our members to sin. And when we do that, as we saw last week, when we present our bodily capacities and members to sin, we act as though in that moment sin were our master. But that's absolutely not true. Sin for the Christian is not a master anymore. At all. At all. Sin has been dethroned, knocked down. And so when we present our members, our eyes, our tongue, our hands, our feet, our thoughts, we present our bodies to sin, we are acting as though in that moment 
That sin is our slave master and we're just handing over the hand to sin. Handing over the eye to sin. So that sin might employ it as it chooses. Since we are no longer under the dominion of sin, this is contrary to our very nature. Makes no sense whatsoever at all. So any kind of theology that says, you know, hey, we're saved by grace and now, you know, it's just, just kind of live freely however we please and it's all covered over, that, that's just foreign, foreign to New Testament Christianity, to biblical Christianity. It's, it's kind of another religion. It's an offshoot. That's not the teaching of the apostles. And remember, the Christians earliest on They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, right? So that should govern how we understand the Christian life. And I hope as we've gone through this that if there is in in you any kind of uh, sense that, that grace can take hold of you and sanctification is kind of an optional thing and you can sort of continue in your sin, I hope the apostle is shattering that illusion for you because it's a lie. It's not... True. But Paul is not just saying that it is ludicrous. He's not just saying it makes no sense to go on practicing sin and serving as sin's slave. Even more, Paul is saying it is impossible. I hear that. Paul is not just saying, man, that sure is stupid to do that. That doesn't make any sense. Paul is saying it is impossible to do that. So that brings us to our second point, an either or. An either or. We've seen the question and answer, and now we come to the either or. As we talk about the Christian life as slavery, there is one fact that we must get clearly in view at the very beginning. If this idea of slavery makes you uncomfortable, There's one important truth we have to just establish at the onset, and it's this. Every human being on earth is a slave. Every human being who has ever lived or ever will live is a slave. Paul makes that clear at the end of verse 16. Either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. For every single person on planet Earth, for every single person in this room, in your neighborhood, at your school, at your workplace, in your family, it is an either-or. We are either one or the other. We are either a slave of sin, which leads to death, or we are a slave of obedience, which leads to righteousness. One or the other. And what that means is, you can't be neither, and you can't be both. You can't be neither, and you can't be both. It is either this, or that. There is no neutral ground. There's no place where you can just sort of be. Uh, An island of liberation from all slavery doesn't exist. You're either under sin or under Christ. The lordship of one dominates your life. Consider what Jesus says about this In the Gospels, John chapter 8, verse 34. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, there seems to be here in in, in the Gospel of John, as well as in 1 John, this sense of practicing sin. So, no no one born of God sins. Well, we know that that does not mean, from earlier in the uh, first epistle of John, that we don't sin anymore at all. We know that that's not the case. We see in the New Testament, we see Peter sin. Paul seems to suggest that Mark sinned. Uh, We see 
also that those who were with Paul have deserted him. And presumably that's kind of sinful, or it's, it is sinful that they've left him. They're afraid. They're pursuing after the world. We see people in Corinth for sure who are sinning. And in Galatia who have sinned. So we know that Jesus is not saying, and John is not saying in 1 John, that to sin means that you are enslaved to sin, or otherwise all Christians would be enslaved to sin, which is contrary to everything Paul is saying. But everyone who practices sin as a way of life, perpetually remaining in it, is a slave to sin. So everyone is a slave of sin, Jesus is saying, unless he or she is a slave of Christ. And we get that too in Matthew 6, 24. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. This is the either or part, right? This is why I say it can't be both. You can't serve sin on Monday and serve Christ on Tuesday. You can't serve sin before breakfast and Christ between breakfast and lunch. It doesn't work that way. It is either or. No one, Jesus says, can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. One master or the other. And that is why Paul uses the language of being under being under one or the other. So go back to verse 14. Let me just pull that in for a moment. You are not under law, but under grace. To be under law, let me just explain this for a moment. If you're trying to figure out the relation between sin and law and death and and so forth. To be under law is to be under sin and death because the law, listen to this, shows and heightens human sin. We're going to see that more in Romans 7, and we've seen that already. But it, it shows and heightens sin. It turns sin into transgression. When God gives a law, like in the Garden of Eden, says, do not. That was the law. That was the one law. Do not eat. And when they did that, they transgressed the very law of God. God gave an explicit, direct, clear command, and they broke it. So in that way, the law, it highlights, it accentuates, it heightens and increases human sin. And then it condemns the sinner to death. Because the very same law that brings about transgression in that sense because of our sin, not because of anything wrong with the law, that very same law condemns sinners. It states that sinners are deserving of death. And so to be under sin and death is to be under the law. To be under the law is to be under sin and death. Grace, on the other hand, removes sin by dealing with its penalty. The law says this stands over you if you do not obey every single jot and tittle. You may think you're you're 98%. Not enough. The law says you must obey every single letter. All of it. From the heart entirely. And no one does that. But grace removes sin by dealing with this penalty of death that hangs over us because of our sin. And it puts sin to death at the cross. In Christ, Christ absorbs the penalty for sin. He became sin for us and sin is punished in Christ at the cross. Sin's punished there. And so those united to Christ have sin already dealt with for them. It's already been dealt with in the body of Christ. To be joined to Christ is to enter into a state of grace in which sin's guilt has been removed and sin's power has been broken. So let me just stop here and give a a couple of implications for us as we think about this for our lives. 
Let me just start by saying this. To go on in sin is to debunk your conversion. Let me say that again. You're here this morning. Choosing to go on in sin, continue in wickedness against God, to continue in transgression against what God has clearly called you to do and be in his word, to go on in that progressively is to debunk your conversion. Now that's not to call into question the perseverance or preservation of the saints. We know that those whom God saves, he keeps. But those who profess to be Christians and continue in sin show their profession to be a lie. And that's exactly what the Apostle John was saying in 1 John 1. We read it earlier. Craig read it to us a little bit ago. That the one who says he's in the light but walks in darkness is a liar. So let me just challenge you this morning. Let me just ask you, are you walking in darkness? Are you showing yourself not to truly be in the light? To go on in sin is to debunk your profession. Notice the contrast here also between sin and obedience. This is another implication I want to highlight. Slavery to Christ means a life of obedience. We don't like that word. We don't. Especially today, I think. That word is so distasteful. Obedience. And all that comes with it. Submission. So forth. It is just a a really nasty word. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, it is a nasty word to us and has been a nasty word to us since we learned how to talk. Right? Since our moms and dads told us not to touch the outlet or to touch the fireplace or whatever. We don't like to be told no. We don't like that. We don't like it any more at 30 or 60 than we did at three. The life of slavery to Christ is a life of obedience to Christ. It's concrete. It's not abstract. It's not this sort of vague idea that never never requires anything of you, that never calls you to be uncomfortable, that never calls you to make sacrifices. It is painfully lived out. It is painfully massaged into the nooks and crannies of real daily life. Obedience to Christ. Just read a history of the first 300 years of the Christian church and you will see what obedience meant concretely. What does it mean for us, doing what he calls us to do. 1 Samuel 15, 22, this was the problem with Saul. See, you have to understand this. It, it, Saul seems like a good guy. He seems like he is uh, thinking about the Lord. He, he's living the, the Christian life as it were. No, he did not obey the voice of the Lord. First. Samuel 15, and Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings as, and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, listen to this, Christian. To obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Saul thought that uh, he was told by Samuel, the word of the Lord came through Samuel to him and told him to destroy. He was to go in and destroy all that were there in that place, and he didn't do it. He was going to, he kept some for a sacrifice. He kept some for some religious purpose. No, said Samuel, that is not what God said. God said, do not do that. He gave him clear instructions, and Saul decided, like the two-year-old, no, 
I do it my way. I do what I want to do. I'm my own king. That's the biggest problem when we discipline our children. We need to help them understand that when they sin, when they disobey their mom and dad, they're saying, I'm king or queen. I am in charge. No. The Christian is enslaved to Christ, and that means concrete, lived-out obedience. What does that mean for you? Third, we see a stepping stone, old versus new. So we've seen a question. We're still on the first point, the change. We've seen a question and answer. We've seen an either or, and now we come to an old versus new. Look at verses 17 to 18. Paul here describes the change that has taken place for the Christian. I love passages like this because they, they just fill us with worship. Listen to what he says. But thanks be to God, he's worshiping, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. As we just saw, before becoming Christians, Paul's readers were slaves of sin. We were slaves of sin. So I want you right now just kind of close your eyes. You don't have to literally, but just in your mind, think about your life before Christ. That's what you were. You were a slave of sin. That's who Paul's readers were. That's who Paul was. Slaves of sin. But, but God, a dramatic transformation has occurred. And notice where Paul begins as he introduces that transformation. Thanks be to God. Now, I just got to stop there. I just got to pause there for, for a moment and make this statement. Salvation is from the Lord. God saves. God saves. He does not merely give an opportunity for you to be saved. That's not how it works. He doesn't, it's not as though those doors back there are shut and he comes through and Christ dies on the cross and Christ is raised and boom, the doors fly open and now he just beckons you and nudges you and pulls you to get you to go through that door over there. That's not it. That's not how it works. God does not just make an opportunity for you to be saved. He saved you. He definitively, mightily saved your soul and your body. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. You can only trace your salvation back to one point, the mercy of God. Why did God save me? Because of his mercy. Period. There, you can't go anywhere to yourself. You just cannot do that. That's not the teaching of the New Testament. That's not the teaching of the whole Bible. We must trace it back to God's mercy. And we saw that with Abraham. We saw that throughout the book of Genesis. God saves us. God transforms us. And at the heart of this change is obedience, as we talked about a moment ago, the obedience of faith. And it is from the heart. Notice Paul's language here. This is obedience from the heart. What is Paul saying? Well, this is a surrendering to God at the very deepest level. This is holistic. The heart in the Bible is, is both the, the, the core of who you are and comprehensively understood as a stand-in for your person. This is, this is the very deepest level of your personal identity, and it is from this very deepest level. There's nothing superficial about this at all. It is from the very deepest level that you have surrendered to God in obedience, if you are a Christian. Now that's radical. Has that happened to you? Has that happened to you? 
Because if that hasn't happened to you, what reason do you have to believe you are a Christian? This work in the heart is the work of the Holy Spirit who circumcises the heart. Romans 2, verse 29. But notice this. We are not made to believe. This is, this is interesting. This is important for us to understand. As we take God's sovereignty in salvation and we put that together with human responsibility and our own choices with regard to salvation, it's important that we see this, that we notice this. So I've said the, the sovereign peace, but thanks be to God. We have to trace it back to God. But notice this, we are not made to believe. We're not coerced into following God against our heart's desires. We're not dragged kicking and screaming to believe Rather, listen to this, praise God for this, this is wonderful. Our heart's desires are changed. Listen to that. Our heart's desires are changed so that we come to embrace God from our very own hearts. Our faith is a gift, but it is not something that is apart from us. It is our faith, but it is a gift of God. He changes the heart so that we begin to love God with our very own hearts. So that Lonnie now loves God. Lonnie believes in God. Not something imported into me from without that coerces me to do something I don't want to do. God changes our hearts. And we will, with those very hearts, worship him eternally. That is the grace of our God. And this is why we're not robots. You've heard that. You've heard that. Uh, when you start to explain predestination or God's irresistible call, that he chooses those whom he will save, as the Bible teaches, and he, the Holy Spirit calls us to believe, and it's an irresistible call, meaning we can't resist it. That sounds an awful lot like coercion, right? Well, what's happening there? What's happening there is our hearts are changed, and God in that changed heart brings us to himself. We're not robots. I'm not a robot up here preaching to you this morning. We're not robots here uh, fellowshipping as the people of God. We want God. We love God. We desire God. And that's because of his grace. We would hate to be in hell because we would be apart from God. And notice that this obedience involves, finally, I want to just draw this out, it involves doctrine, theology, Christian truth. There is submission to God's Glorious gospel as true. You became obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. Now notice that. How is Paul defining their conversion? What is he associating their conversion with? Obedience from the heart, which we just talked about. To what? To the standard of teaching. To gospel Truth. How can we say that we don't need theology? You've heard that too. That's common. How can we say we don't need theology when our very conversion is described as obedience to the standard of teaching? What in the world? Of course we need teaching. Of course we need doctrine. Of course we need theology. It was obedience to that very truth. That was part of our conversion. And by the way, let me just say this to build on something said a couple of weeks ago. This is another reason to be cautious and discerning with childhood conversions. So let me say this. Yes, God can save the smallest child. God can save small children and has in many cases. But notice this. If Paul describes the conversion of these readers as obedience from the heart to the standard of teaching, then how much more cautious ought we to be and discerning ought we to be in 
assessing the conversions of our children, considering that it involves their apprehension of gospel truth and submission to it. They have to understand the truth of the gospel. We're not talking about just some fluttery thing here. We're not talking about just saying, I want to ask Jesus into my heart. But we're not talking about them becoming systematic theologians. We're just talking about them submitting from the heart to the standard of teaching that they have been taught. And that's why the greatest thing that you can do, parent, for your child is not just get them to pray a prayer or make sure they get baptized so that they can feel affirmed. The greatest thing you can do for your child is teach them the gospel in your home and let God take that gospel of grace that you're teaching them and let him with that shape them and give them greater clarity as they grow up, as they age, greater clarity about the sinfulness of their own hearts, about the holiness of God, their need for a savior. Let God show them what he's done in their hearts, affirming them and encouraging them along the way. Conversion involves teaching. So that's the change. We've seen those three stepping stones, question and answer, either or, old versus new, and now we come to the charge. The charge. Look at verse 19. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. The reason I have labeled this point the charge is because here Paul brings the indicative back to the imperative. He goes from explanation, which is what we've seen in verses 15 to 18. He goes from explanation to now exhortation. From statement of reality, from explaining what is true, to a call to action. That's what we find in verse 19. But before doing that, Paul lets his readers know that this whole slavery business is drawn from the world of human mortality. There's a reason why, although we hear this slavery concept and we understand it in terms of our submission to God and in terms of our being under Christ and united to Christ and so forth, we understand it. But there is an inherent reason why it makes us uncomfortable. There, there's a reason why that's the case. And it's because it is, it is drawn from a fallen world, a world of human mortality, a world after Eden. Unfortunately, slavery has been a part of the human experience from the very beginning. It is part of our fallen world. Many of Paul's readers were probably slaves. Think about that. They would have known immediately what Paul was talking about. This is so foreign to us. We read this stuff and we're just trying to figure out. They lived slavery, many of them. Some estimates over half of the congregation. Roman slaves. In fact, I read that there were so many slaves in Rome, so much of a high percentage of the Roman population was comprised of slaves that they did not want them to wear uh, special clothes to show that they were slaves because then everyone would look around and realize uh, how, how strong they were in numbers, right? And you might have another Spartacus kind of incident or something like that where, you know, the slaves revolt and topple over their masters. So many slaves in Rome. And they would have immediately understood in this church, they would have immediately understood what this meant because they, they were slaves day in and day out. They had to do what their master told them to do. Roman slaves who understood what slavery meant. And Paul uses it here really as a metaphor. This, this fallen human convention. This fallen human institution. 
He uses it as a metaphor, a word picture for explaining the grip that sin has on human beings. That's what he's doing. And for the new state of being that we have as those who are now under Christ and those who now give ourselves entirely to the service of God. That he's using the slavery metaphor to get across those theological, spiritual truths. We've already seen that this slavery is in one sense experienced as no slavery at all. The Christian does not experience this slavery as slavery, which is why this seems so foreign to us. And the reason for that is because we obey from the heart. When we think of slavery, we think of the the slave who is there under the threat of punishment, who is doing what he's been told to do so that he's not sold, beaten, or killed. That's not our situation at all. We've been told we will never be sold. We will never be killed. We have eternal life. And we are made to obey. We are transformed to obey from the heart. Our service to God is a service of love. It's a service of joy. Now, sometimes it is painful, as I said before, it involves much sacrifice, but it is nonetheless a service of love and joy. And that's the reason why you read these martyr accounts. And it's amazing. They're being killed, and it's not as though they're, they're sitting there. You know, I'm sure the martyrs die in all different kinds of ways. It's horrific. But they're just sort of grinning and bearing it. Okay, God, I'll do this for you. That's not how it works. Read the biographies. Many of them die joyfully. Praising God that they get to suffer for Christ. That's not some kind of coercion. That's a transformed life. So we don't really experience this as slavery in one sense. His mastery over us, by the way, Christ's mastery over us, is one of the highest sacrifice. Our slave master died for us. I mean, so it just falls apart. Right? The metaphor falls apart at one level for the Christian because our master actually became our slave before he called us to be his slaves. It's amazing. Paul is speaking in human terms, he says, because of their natural limitations. But now, in the latter part of this verse, as we close this morning, Paul quickly summarizes his point. And he calls his readers to action. Where they used to present their bodily members to impurity and to lawlessness, they must now present their members as slaves to righteousness. He says lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. We saw that at the end of Romans 1. That sin breeds sin. Where you sow sin, you get more sin. You've seen that. You've had a sinful habit. You sow to it. It's that much harder not to sow to it next time and the next time and the next time. Next thing you know, you're looking at your life and you're wondering, how in the world did I get here? I am a mess. Well, that's what happens. You sow and sow and sow and sow and then you're here. That's how it works. Lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. Instead of that, they must now present their members as slaves to righteousness. Charles Hodge, a great American theologian, gives a helpful explanation of what's in mind when Paul says impurity and lawlessness. He uses these words, and oftentimes these words are very synonymous. You know, we've seen unrighteousness, iniquity, impurity, lawlessness, sin, transgression, trespass. These words do have their own specific meaning. But oftentimes they are used synonymously. These two words, Charles Hodge says, express the same thing under different aspects. Sin, subjectively considered, is pollution. There's the impurity part. A defilement of the soul. Relative to the law of God, it is lawlessness. What is unlawful, what fails of conformity to the law. Others, however, have suggested that this first word, impurity, deals explicitly with sexual immorality. And let me just pause there for a moment. We've been talking about this as elders, about helping 
brothers in the church in particular, to fight pornography. And let me just say this. This is very important. Where you find sanctification and holiness language in the New Testament, very often it is attached to sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is one of the greatest expressions of depravity. Paul makes that case in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says we join our members in sexual immorality. We join our members, the members of the body of Christ. And so I just want you to consider, as you think about this word impurity, if Satan has deceived you into thinking that this little habit of sexual immorality that you have in your life is moderately tame, it's not. It's not tame. It will devour you and it will devour your life. Put it to death today. Give no more to it. If you're a Christian, you don't have to. You don't have to give one more inch. So some have suggested that this first word deals with sexual immorality and the second with mistreatment of our neighbor. And that may be so, but either way, Paul says we must no longer present our members to those things. No more, but rather to righteousness, to that which is pure, not impure. To that which is in accord with God's holy law. Not what is lawlessness. That which is in accord with his revealed will. And as we do this, listen to this. This is so important. As we do this, presenting our members to righteousness, to what is pure, to what is in accord with God's revealed will, as we do this day by day, Decision by decision. The result, listen to this, this is exciting stuff. Fighting sin is exciting because the result of presenting our members to righteousness is sanctification or holiness. So we see it here, verse 19, with the words leading to sanctification or holiness. Do you see that in verse 19? The very end. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness. There are those precious words. Leading to sanctification. Listen to this, brother and sister. Sanctification doesn't happen automatically. It's not a passive affair at all. You want to just stay where you're at? Don't listen to the apostle. Don't present your members to righteousness rather than unrighteousness. Impurity and lawlessness. Your growth will be stunted. You're not going to grow automatically, Christian. There's nothing, nothing in the New Testament that indicates that there's this sort of automatic growth mechanism. We know we'll be kept. We know that he who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. But we also know that we are called to actively pursue sanctification. And that happens in the little decisions of life. There is no neutral mundane territory. Isn't that, that's also exciting. That means that no matter how boring life may seem, no matter how a drab or dry life may seem, that even mom, as you're making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for your child for lunch, there are moments in that, there are decisions in that moment in which you can grow in sanctification by presenting your members to righteousness rather than lawlessness. Even in that, even in those endless emails that you have to respond to at work, every little mundane thing is an opportunity to grow in holiness. That makes life a, a majestic, beautiful theater to live out this life that God has called us to. We are progressively changed into Christ's likeness, and this involves moment-by-moment -moment decisions to rightly present our bodily members. I hope you see, I hope you leave here today with this one idea at the very end here, that your little choices matter. The things that you think don't matter, that they really do, and they sow one way or the other. 
as Thomas Schreiner puts it, slavery to righteousness must be ratified by the decision to be God's slave, listen to this, in the particulars of life. Little things. And as I close this morning, Kent Hughes ends his commentary on these verses with these penetrating words, and I think this is where we all have to leave it. If God is speaking to you about any area of your life, obey him now. Obey him now because you are a slave of Christ who died for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for reminding us of who we are and of what we are called to do. Help us in this, Father. Help us to see our little choices, the particulars of life, with the kind of grandeur and majesty that you give them here, that even these little things, whether we eat or whether we drink, whatever we do, we do all for the glory of God. We present ourselves to you in every tiny bite, every sip, every action, every glance, every thought, every word, under your lordship, our God. We thank you for this time. We pray that you'd be with us now as we enter into the Lord's Supper. We ask God that we would commune together as a body and with Christ from the heart as we consider what Christ did in dying for us to purchase us to be his very own possession. In Jesus' name, amen.